Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today I'm with Dr. Ananda Basu, the Harrison Professor of Medicine at the University of Virginia, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism. Dr. Basu, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So before we dive into our topic on type 1 diabetes, can you give us a quick background on yourself? Sure. So um, I have uh, been practicing endocrinology ever since I finished my residency and fellowship at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And then I was there until 2017, and then I moved to UVA in the middle of 2017. So I've been here for the last three years. My research and clinical interest has mainly been on the physiology of type 1 and type 2 diabetes and uh, how to uh, make, make uh, improve care for patients with diabetes and improve uh, the closed-loop system or the so-called artificial pancreas systems that are currently being uh, done and approved by FDA uh, for management of type 1 diabetes. So. I've been intimately involved with diabetes care uh, in my professional life at least for the last 20 or 25 years. I, and I look forward to, uh, to helping people with diabetes understand the disease better and manage them better. Wonderful. And I look forward to covering uh, your research interests in this podcast and, and covering uh, type 1 diabetes so listeners can have a full uh, understanding and good foundation moving forward. Uh, my first question is actually on one of your research interests. Uh, the physiology of, of the pancreas and, and, and diabetes and how blood sugar works in our bodies. Yeah, so, you know, I've been involved in research for quite a while, at least for the last 15, 20 years. And I turned from type 2 diabetes to type 1 diabetes about 12 years ago. And basically through my research, which has so far been mainly funded by the National Institute of Health, uh, the diabetes division, I've been looking at diabetes physiology in type 1 diabetes. For example, one of the findings that we described uh, was that is there like a daily pattern of how insulin works in your body? For example, does insulin work the same way at breakfast, at lunch, and at dinner in the same individual with type 1 diabetes? And as it turns out, it does not. There is some variation, day-to-day -day variation uh, between breakfast, lunch, and dinner. For example, in a normal healthy person, it do not have diabetes. It appears that uh, the body's metabol uh, metabolism is the most efficient at breakfast compared to lunch and dinner. While in people with type 1 diabetes, it seems just the opposite, that uh, a diabetic uh, uh, person with type 1 diabetes, their metabolism as far as uh, glucose metabolism is concerned is worse in the morning and it improves as the day progresses. So this has not been known in the past until uh, we investigated this and the translational relevance of this finding is that uh, the some of the newer artificial pancreas algorithms that are currently being incorporated and tested for treatment of type 1 diabetes actually incorporates this, in, uh, this information that uh, the effect of insulin at breakfast is less than at lunch and dinner. So the next generation of closed-loop control algorithms uh, 
will incorporate that into their system so that it will help patients with diabetes manage their diabetes better, especially when they are linked to the uh, closed loop system, to the artificial pancreas systems. That is fascinating. That's amazing to hear. I think I can make a big difference. So before we dive into the artificial pancreas and the treatments we use for patients with diabetes uh, now and, and into the future, uh, what are the most common symptoms patients come in with prior to being diagnosed with diabetes? Yes, yeah, so the, the commonest symptoms, especially with type 1 diabetes, uh, is that they start to lose weight uh, without trying to lose weight. Uh, and they have increased thirst and increased urination. And that's because once the blood sugar gets gets high, it spills into the urine. And when, uh, when sugar spills into the urine, it draws water out of the body. So basically, you'll start to feel more thirsty and you'll start to pass more urine. And because you're losing glucose in your urine, glucose is calories, so you start to lose weight. So these are the main manifestations of patients who are developing diabetes without their knowledge. Some of the other symptoms are, uh, you know, some of these patients uh, start to get blurred vision. And that is because when the uh, blood glucose levels change, the size of the lens in your eye changes. It becomes thicker. Mm. And, and that can cause blurring of vision. So these are some of the telltale symptoms that a patient might have for unrecognized diabetes. Interesting. Okay, so uh, scenario, let's say a patient comes in with, uh, has lost a significant amount of weight and has been frequently urinating uh, for some time. What do you then do to diagnose them? So basically he needs to go to his primary care doctor who can, who can do a simple blood test. He can do a finger stick blood test. Uh, and check the blood sugar levels to, to determine whether it is elevated or not. And uh, your doctor can also do a blood test from, from, your, from your vein and send it to the laboratory to test your glucose levels and hemoglobin A1C levels, which is okay. called the glycated hemoglobin. Okay. And if, if one or both of these tests are abnormal, that will diagnose you to have diabetes. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. So, uh, so the A1C tests... Are there any tests used outside of the A1C tests and tests for blood sugar uh, when examining possible diabetes patients? No, I mean, the diagnosis of diabetes, Jake, is primarily related to blood sugar measurement and or hemoglobin A1C measurement. Hemoglobin so without, those, okay. without those two tests, uh, we, don't we can't confirm a diagnosis of diabetes. Okay, wonderful. Because, yeah. Previous to this, I've, I've uh, seen a number of A1C tests, and I myself have done a lot of glucose tests from being an EMT and working in an OR. Um, so, yeah, I was curious if there are any others. So, wonderful. Um, so, you've now diagnosed a patient with diabetes. What is the standard treatment plan, and what? how do you determine uh, what treatment to do? You talked about the artificial uh, pancreas. Uh, I know some people personally that use a pump. Uh, even I have a friend that is old school and uses injections. So how sure. do you determine the treatment? Yes. Yeah, so again, it, de it depends on the clinical situation, Jake. So if we are talking of type one diabetes, that means you know these uh, these patients usually. I mean, type one diabetes means that 
there are not enough beta cells in your pancreas that normally make insulin. Okay. So when these beta cells are destroyed, and it takes at least 90% of, of the beta cell population to be destroyed in the pancreas before the blood sugar starts to go up. And this I'm talking of patients with type 1 diabetes. Uh, so, you know, a, 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 an adult approximately has about 1 million beta cells in the pancreas. Okay, okay. okay, and when that count goes down by 90%, then there's not enough insulin that, that your pancreas can make uh, to maintain your blood sugar levels under normal levels. Okay. okay. So under those situations, you develop type 1 diabetes, which is usually a very quick onset and acute onset. Patients usually are symptomatic with the symptoms that we described before. And the only treatment under those situations is insulin treatment by injections. So it could either be multiple injections a day, or it could be an insulin pump therapy, or ultimately it could graduate to an artificial pancreas therapy, which is essentially a very specialized uh, pump-based insulin therapy. Hmm. So that is for type 1 diabetes. Now, as you know, you know, uh, only 10% of the U.S. population has type 1 diabetes. The remaining 90% have type 2 diabetes, which although they have the same end manifestation, that is high blood sugars and high hemoglobin A1C, the cause of type 2 diabetes is entirely different than type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. It's more of a gradual onset. Many of the patients with type 2 diabetes do not realize that they have diabetes unless they get their blood sugar tested because th their symptoms are very slow to develop. So in those situations of type 2 diabetes, most of these people with type 2 diabetes are overweight or obese. They are usually, uh, you know, uh, generally speaking, they're over the age of 25 or 30. Mm -hmm. Okay, But unfortunately, we are seeing more and more teenagers currently in this country and also throughout the West, uh, that teenagers are, are developing type 2 diabetes because of increased prevalence of obesity. Hmm. So type 2 diabetes and obesity go hand in hand. And the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes is entirely different than type 1 diabetes. For example, as I mentioned, type 1 diabetes occurs when more than 90% of the cells in your body that make insulin are destroyed usually by immunological mechanisms. Your, your body makes antibodies to these cells. We don't know why that happens, but there are a lot of theories, but that is the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes. While type 2 diabetes is more often than not obesity-related, or people who are overweight or obese for various reasons. And in those situations, there is a combination of relative lack of insulin, because there are not enough beta cells in the pancreas, but more importantly, their body tissues become resistant to the action of insulin. Resistance. Insulin doesn't work as efficiently as they normally do in healthy people or in people with type 1 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes, there's insulin resistance as well as a relative lack of insulin in the pancreas. While type 1 diabetes is predominantly due to absolute lack of insulin Wonderful. Yeah, I think that's a great clarification uh, between type 1 and type 2. Uh, just to restate it again, type 1 is that your, in, your pancreas is no longer producing 
insulin because of the beta cells being 90% gone and type 2 being resistance to insulin. Right. Uh, wonderful. Um, so based on that, do, do treatment plans, are you still treating patients the same uh, with insulin therapy for both? And then I'm, I'm really curious about the artificial pancreas. How many patients are using the artificial pancreas now versus the pump? Uh, so that's a great question, Jake. So let me handle the first the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes as far as treatment is concerned. Okay. So as I mentioned, type 1 diabetes, because it is due to an absolute deficiency of insulin in the body, the mainstay of treatment is insulin. There's no question. Okay. There's no other, you know, no other really definitive treatment for type one diabetes. Uh, type two diabetes is a different ball game altogether because it is more insulin resistance, and it's more of a gradual and insidious onset compared to type one diabetes. So therefore, there are lots of other approaches to treat type two diabetes. They, you know, people can start with different, there are different medications, pills. Uh, there are different uh, tablets that patients can take for type 2 diabetes. Some of the examples are metformin, which is a long, old treatment for, for type 2 diabetes. It works by improving this insulin resistance in the body. Sure. It is a very useful treatment for type 2 diabetes and is really the first line of treatment for type 2 diabetes. There are lots of other tablets and other medications that have been developed over the years including drugs like sulfonylureas, for example, glomeparide or glipizide, drugs like SGLT2 inhibitors, or like Jardians and, and various other. So there are lots of non-insulin options for type 2 diabetes in the form of pills, also in the form of injections for type 2 diabetes. While for type 1 diabetes, the mainstay is really insulin therapy. Now, for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, you know, especially for type 2 diabetes, but also for type 1 diabetes, dietary changes and dietary approaches are very important. To eat a well-balanced diet and not eat too much carbs uh, is, is very important uh, for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, but especially for type 2 diabetes because that is linked to being overweight or obese. So again, weight management and weight reduction is very, very important for patients with, especially with type 2 diabetes. And studies have, have shown that you don't need to lose a lot of weight to improve your blood sugar control in type 2 diabetes. Even if you lose between 5 to 7% of your weight in a year or two years, that will really improve the overall prognosis and management of type 2 diabetes. So you don't have to lose a huge amount of weight to make an impact on your blood sugar level. So imagine if you weigh about 200 pounds, you know, even if you lose about five to 7%, so that we are talking about maybe 10 to 15 pounds in a year, that will improve your diabetes control tremendously. So the key is gradual weight loss and maintaining the weight loss, uh, and, you know, long-term. That really would help in the management of type two diabetes. Now for type one diabetes, of course, insulin is the mainstay. And, you know, more and more people are currently beginning to use the insulin pump and the artificial pancreas systems ever since these systems were approved 
last few years. So currently there are two main artificial pancreas systems that are approved by the FDA for type 1 diabetes. One is the Medtronic system and the other one is the Tandem uh, system. Okay. So again, in my clinic uh, here at UVA, we have something called the Advanced Diabetes Management Clinic that is predominantly for patients who, who require technology like insulin pumps and uh, closed-loop artificial pancreas systems and glucose sensors. We currently see close to about a thousand patients uh, in the in the clinic. And I would say about 30 or 40 percent of these patients, if not more, uh, are either on the artificial pancreas systems or on insulin pumps. So at least I would say 30 to 40 percent. Uh, and these numbers are at this proportion that are growing almost every week that we are starting patients with insulin pump and these closed loop systems in, in my clinic. Okay. Interesting. So is the goal, I mean, what do we see with, like, what do we see working better? Or like, is the goal to have all type one diabetes patients on an artificial pancreas eventually, once the technology gets to clinics all across the country? Yes, that is, uh, that is the utopian view. There's no question about it. (laughs) One of the, there are several limitations and some of the limitations, hopefully, can be removed, and you know, uh, one of the major limitations is insurance coverage. You know, um, uh, is it covered by insurance right now? You know, there there are certain uh, certain um, limitations that are still in place. Uh, you know, full insurance coverage is not available uh, currently, but many of the insurers do cover say 80 or 85, 75 or 80 percent of the costs because out-of-pocket payment is is quite uh, quite a bit uh, you know um, unless you have plenty of money you know out-of-pocket payment for the average patient uh, is difficult so uh, it 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 is getting better it is it is slowly but steadily improving but it will still have a long way to go so insurance coverage is still perhaps the major limiting factor for most of these type 1 diabetic patients before they're approved for artificial pancreas treatment. Okay, so that is number one. And the number two, uh, you know, number two is before you start, you know, for you to start a patient on an artificial pancreas, you should make sure that your clinic has enough expertise in handling these patients. For example, uh, you know, the physicians that uh, will follow up with these patients or the nurse practitioners or the diabetes educators or the dietitians. You have good support system in place in your clinic uh, so that if the patient has any troubles or for troubleshooting and so on and so forth, you can provide them with good support. So that is very important uh, that before you start a patient on an artificial pancreas or even on an insulin pump, you are you are able to provide the, the resources and support necessary for continuing care for this patient. And unfortunately, many primary care practices do not yet have the resources or the expertise to support these patients on a long-term basis. So many of these, so most of these are patients on artificial pancreas that I know of and that I've heard of have to rely on expert endocrinologists or diabetologists to take care of them. 
So that is another limitation. So certainly we are working on that here at UVAJ. We are uh, providing you know, uh, educational uh, initiatives to educate primary care providers on, uh, on gaining expertise and handling insulin pumps and uh, patients with artificial pancreas. So that is, but that still is, there's still a gap there and that we are hoping to fulfill with time. We have recently got a grant uh, from in the, uh, from one of uh, you know outside sources to provide a, an educational program to educate primary care providers and nurses uh, that can help these patients uh, on uh, insulin pump and closed loop systems. So that is the second barrier, and the third barrier, of course, is the patient barrier. You know, not all patients are what shall I say, have the, uh, 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 you know, a technical know-how yet uh, to, uh, you know, so it requires a lot of, being a lot of tech savvy uh, to, to do that. Uh, and together with that also is uh, the lack of internet connectivity in, in rural populations, as per, even in Virginia, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, because, you know, for good, efficient control of these patients on insulin pumps or artificial pancreas systems, uh, we can do a lot of something called remote patient monitoring through the cloud and through the internet. Because these, uh, the data from the pump and from the glucose sensors and the artificial pancreas can be uploaded by the patient automatically into the cloud and, uh, and we can see those reports remotely sitting in the clinic or sitting in my office. So the patient doesn't have to come to my office face-to-face -face for a face-to-face -face visit. We can manage them remotely. But the one of the limitations uh, around the country and especially in rural areas of Virginia is that many patients don't have internet access. Hmm. So, you know, that is, a, unfortunately, that is still a big limitation. They don't, you know, they're just getting broadband or getting internet connectivity. So internet connectivity is still a problem that can limit the numbers that we can use, you know, to, to treat these patients. Wow. Yeah. I would have never guessed. Uh, yeah. The internet's just become so common in my life. I just wouldn't have guessed. Exactly. Yeah. You know, in certain parts of Virginia, in rural Virginia, Drake, you know, especially in the west, western part of Virginia and southwest, and pockets in southeast and southern parts of Virginia, that's still a problem. Hmm. That is still a problem. And that is also another limitation to provide quality care. Interesting. Um, patients. Yeah. yeah, well, it's interesting to hear those limitations, but it's it's good to hear that there are, that you and the, the diabetes community, or at least the treating of diabetes, are familiar with these limitations and are working to overcome them. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how widespread artificial pancreas has become because I know probably five to ten people that all have insulin pumps and not right. and not any of them have an artificial pancreas. And I know it takes time with medicine to, for it to become widespread. Um, but, with, but, you know, Jake, if they have type 1 diabetes and they're already on the insulin pump, it shouldn't be a problem to connect them to an artificial pancreas. You know, if they live close by to Charlottesville, have them connect with me. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. not a problem. 
yeah, I'll reach out and maybe, maybe, maybe they have upgraded since I've last talked with them. Sure. Uh, but that is interesting. And you know, the artificial pancreas is still relatively new. I read FDA approved the first in 2016 and the second in 2019. Right. So right. yeah, it's wonderful though to see that actions are being taken to, to make it become the, I'm not, is it already the standard of care or is it? I, I wouldn't say, I mean, it's certainly becoming the standard of care in my clinic. There's no question in patients with type 1 diabetes. But as I said, because of the other barriers, insurance and the expertise in primary health centers and primary care practitioners, yeah. it is still not the It is not yet the standard of care for type 1 diabetes. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. So I want to ask about diabetic emergencies and, and what do you do to help patients prevent uh, diabetic emergencies? Why, why is uh, optimal blood sugar so important in our bodies? Yes. Yeah, so again, you know, that's a great question. Once again, and there have been lots of major landmark clinical trials uh, that have shown that uh, you know, good blood glucose control or getting your blood sugar as close to normal as possible reduces the risk of long-term complications. You know, complications in the form of eye complications, blindness, uh, you know, uh, peripheral neuropathy or foot complications or amputations, as well as heart attacks and strokes and kidney problems. Uh, they are directly related to the level of glucose control. And, you know, the commonest cause of blindness in the Western world is diabetes. Uh, the commonest wow. cause of, of non-traumatic amputations in the Western world is diabetes. Wow. The commonest cause of kidney failure and dialysis requirement is diabetes. So it, it, it and, and about 40% of all patients who get heart attacks and strokes have diabetes. So, so really it's a major problem and, you know, based on the last guesstimate, uh, last statistics available, I think from 2018, the cost of diabetes in the U.S. was, uh, I think, close to about 350 to $400 billion per year, the annual cost, healthcare cost. So, and a lot of it is preventable. A lot of it is preventable if we can educate our patients and providers uh, to improve glucose control and diabetes care in all patients with diabetes starting day one of their diagnosis. Because, you know, these complications of diabetes doesn't occur overnight. It takes years for them to develop. Kidneys, heart, nerve, eye complication takes 10 to 15 years to develop. So if we can control diabetes right from day one, these, the risk of complications can be reduced by 80, 90%, no question about it. But the ultimate benefit, cost benefit of preventing diabetes complications will be huge, uh, both from the financial standpoint, which is probably less important than the patient morbidity, you know, and, 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 and their lifestyle and the quality of life. So it's a huge burden, you know, it's a huge gap there. So, so clearly, you know, education is key, both not only for the patients, but also for the providers and the support staff. So that is important. Now, as far as acute complications of diabetes, there are mainly two major acute complications. One is, of course, 
low blood sugar, the hyperglycemia. And that can especially occur in type 1 diabetes who are taking insulin or type 2 diabetes who are also taking insulin. So, you know, hypoglycemia, that means when the blood sugar is too low, that can cause major problems. As well as very high blood sugars uh, leading to something called diabetic ketoacidosis mm, yeah. can also are acute emergency related to diabetes. And uh, most of them need acute you know, acute care in the emergency department or in the hospital. But it is not difficult to prevent these complications, again, by the use of good surveillance, by the use of educating these patients, use of, uh, you know, blood glucose monitors and continuous glucose monitors. All of these measures have been shown to lower the risk of complications, both acute and long-term complications of diabetes. So it's a multifaceted approach uh, that needs uh, needs to be undertaken. Hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, that's that's good to hear, and I hope I hope as many people as possible can uh, can uh, be prevented from those issues. Because I have known people that have had some of those diabetic emergencies. So, uh, well, awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Doctor Basu. Is there anything else you'd like to tell listeners before we wrap up? Well, Jake, so thank you very much. And these type of podcasts, I hope, are, are very important to transmit the message uh, of uh, you know to people with uh, you know with diabetes and even you know because diabetes is not only burdens the patient per se with diabetes, but also family members. Uh, you know, especially you know children with diabetes. Uh, you know, they rely on their parents and their loved ones for for taking proper care of themselves. So again, it's a chronic disease, and I hope podcasts like yours will help transmit the message to the wider population. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Pursue. Thank you, Jake. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.